Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. An ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that's that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Life After God podcast. My name is Ryan Bell, and this is episode 83. For those of you who have been following the podcast regularly for these past four years, you know the show has changed a little and has had a wide variety of guests, but at the heart of it, it's always been about individual stories of people who have gone through or are going through religious transition. When I got started back in 2015, there weren't very many podcasts focusing on the experiences of deconversion. The main one that comes to mind is Everyone's Agnostic with Cass Midgley, which you should definitely check out if you haven't. Since then, dozens of podcasts have emerged talking about leaving evangelicalism or some other forms of faith or about the experience of losing one's faith altogether. I've turned my attention since then to the question of what comes after. How do we who were raised in a religious worldview and culture start to rethink our philosophical and political frameworks and begin to live into different stories about what it means to be human. But today I'm returning to the roots of this show. In this episode, I speak with a longtime Life After God friend and listener, Christy Kiger Upman. When she heard my conversation with Jeff Charlotte a few weeks ago, she reached out to tell me that her story involved the same network of Christians in Washington, D.C., and thought her story would be a good companion to the story Jeff tells about the fellowship and their 70-year influence campaign in U.S. and global politics. Christy worked at a nonprofit called the Southeast White House for 10 years, which is part of the fellowship or the family, as it's commonly called. If you haven't yet listened to my conversation with Jeff Charlotte, author of The Family and C Street, you'll definitely want to come back and do that. The Family has also recently been made into a five-part Netflix series, which is a fascinating look into this Christian nationalist network of highly placed senators and congresspeople, as well as young recruits. It's like a fraternity for Christian men who want to rule the world in Jesus' name. This episode is made possible, as always, by the members and other supporters of Life After God. A huge thank you to each and every one of you who support the show on our Patreon page. If you'd like to be a part of keeping this show free and available for everyone, become a supporter. Visit patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. One other quick announcement of a personal nature before we get into this conversation. I'm running for city council in my hometown of Pasadena, California. I'll say a little more about this and my decision to run in future episodes, but I just wanted you to be the first to know and invite you to check out my campaign website at ryanbellforpasadena.com. The vast majority of you don't live in Los Angeles, let alone Pasadena, let alone District 6 in Pasadena, but I would be appreciative of your support nonetheless. And now, my conversation with Christy Kiger-Upman. Christy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ryan. It's good to have you on the show. Um, We have known each other now, both online and then I finally met you in person a couple years ago here in Pasadena. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, but I guess you've been um, sort of corresponding with me off and on since I started Year Without God. Is that that about right? Yeah, the first time that I uh, heard about you was actually at the conclusion of your Year Without God uh, there was a an NPR story, um, and so I didn't I didn't hear while you were going through it. I just sort of heard at the conclusion, and then I went backwards and searched for every 
interview of anything I could find <laughs> with you and like recapped that uh, year without God. But I knew your conclusion by the time I went back and was listening to everything. Oh, you the, you got the spoiler. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so it's good to talk to you. Um, and I'm really excited about hearing your story in a way that a much deeper way than I've ever heard before. So um, for listeners, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting this real time, uh, sort of like you are. So I kind of like doing episodes like this where I don't know kind of all the details um, any more mm-hmm. than anybody else does. So let's start where I often start, which is at the beginning. Um, you were raised, as I understand, in a Christian family, Christian church. Can you tell us just what that was like, how you're um, how you were raised and what that growing up experience for you, what, how religion was for you growing up? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so I grew up in a Christian home. Um, my parents, though, were both from the Midwest. I grew up in Los Angeles, and they had grown up in really conservative Christian homes, my mom in particular. Um, but for my sister and I, I just have one sister, Growing up, um, church was very social um, and a lot of focus on like a family ministry type thing that we were in where we were connected to other families. Um, And so my theology um, was pretty loose, like as a child, right? Like things weren't weren't very strict. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was definitely like a social outlet. And at that time, my parents were kind of deconstructing the fundamentalism that they came out of. Um, but that wasn't visible to me per se. Like we just went to church and had like that social outlet. Um, but, and then when I was in around junior high or so, my family had stopped going to church, but I would still like catch rides to youth group. And then, um, and then when I was in high school, uh, then I hadn't been to church in a few years. Some things came up, uh, and I jumped on the bandwagon of something, and then I dove in like full force. Hmm. Um, and so, and that was really when I became an evangelical. You know, like I really dedicated my life and became more religious then at any point in my upbringing and became um, really like the most religious person in my family, right? And really dedicated to to church. And uh, some of that stuff I've now later, 20 plus years later, talked with my dad about um, some of the messaging that, you know, I got around purity or around salvation or, and my parents didn't really see that side of it that I was getting like to them, they were like, Oh, she's like involved in, you know, youth group and church. Like that's all good things, you know, yeah, how bad could that um, be? But they didn't necessarily uh, know kind of the evangelical culture of the nineties that, you know, that was pervasive now um, at that time. Right. And so we kind of had like, I don't know, our wires were crossed a little bit in terms of um, what I was really believing. And I did have some conflict at times um, with my mom in particular, who um, being in California and um, she she was a nurse and um, but was getting more into like holistic health and healing and I had these like red flags about all of that. And um, and then I knew that her theology was like loosening up. So we had like some conflict around that. That's interesting. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I just really dove in full force and my focus um, pretty quickly became on missions and the poor. Um, and in fact, the, the one the thing that brought me back to church initially in high school was a Memorial Day weekend mission trip to Mexico. Um, and you're probably familiar with the structure of these things. Yeah. Like we, you know, went down south of the border and slept in tents on the beach and like hung out with kids in orphanages and painted over graffiti and stuff. And um, 
And that was my like re-entrance into the church. So there were some really good things that I like clung to with all of that. Um, and that really set the trajectory when I ended up working in urban ministry after college for 10 years. And um, yeah, I mean, that that really set the trajectory of my life. Right. But um, it was also like kind of the beginning of the short term mission movement in the church, like where, I mean, now the old church that I went to, um, you're probably familiar with it. I went to Bel Air Presbyterian Church. Oh, yeah. I've been there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and growing up, it was not a mega church. So I was also there during the time where it transformed from like a normal church <laughs> to <laughs> a total mega church. Right. Um, and but so back in 95, 96, I went to Egypt a couple of times, which Israel is part of that. Um, and that was like the one trip that was, you know, happening and it was a new thing. I mean, now they probably send out 25 different mission trips every year, you know? Right. <laughs> so, um, so it was, it was a new thing on the scene in the, you know, mid nineties. And, but there was also a lot of focus on like community connecting with the global, global church, trying to empower the church. Um, so I never did anything with a really strong evangelical, like in the sense of like proselytizing or, you know, going to convert people. Like we went and connected to the church in Egypt. Right. But then at the same time, the idea was like empowering the church there to outreach to Muslims and stuff. So, um, so there was a, an, an evangelical um, sort of proselytizing goal to it, but maybe slightly less colonial, <laughs> like right. in the sense that like we were like trying to empower the local church that we knew there and were partnering with to then like kind of go out to do the work. Um, yeah, yeah, and and there was also um, a recognition that the work that we were doing could easily be done by locals, right? So even when we were like, oh, we're going to build this playground, like we knew they didn't need Americans to like fly there and build a playground. <laughs> right. But it was an expression of the partnership between our churches. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm familiar with that kind of model of, uh, of, of missionizing, you know, it's kind of a, I guess, an evolution in, in mission approach, you know, where it's less heavy handed, but still you know, very much driven by a Western Christian framework. Mm -hmm. Right. So I find it interesting that your parents were in sort of, in some ways, as you said, deconstructing their faith as you were sort of coming of age and sort of sorting out your belief system. And you sort mm -hmm. of passed, like crossed each, each other in the dark. And I, I think I had a similar experience where, you know, my, my family was certainly conservative and my grandparents were very, very religious and I lived with them throughout high school. But my mom and dad were sort of leaving the church as I was getting more serious. So I, I can kind of relate to what you're... Oh, interesting. What yeah. you're saying, yeah. And they didn't have as much influence on me because I was... They were going through their own problems and I was living with my grandparents at the time. And so I think their mm. influence on me was primary and really led me down a path of, you know, very earnest, sincere uh, pursuit of truth through the Bible and, and, mm -hmm. you know, trying to find the truth and be loyal and faithful in all the, all the ways that you're supposed to. Mm -hmm. So you're describing, you know, high school and then college, you know, really diving in with, you know, headfirst into this evangelical world, um, doing mission uh, projects. And you told me a few weeks ago after you heard that I was talking to Jeff Charlotte, uh, who is the author of the, the book, The Family, and sort of the, I guess, the producer of the recent Netflix series by the same name, uh, he was on the show mm -hmm. two episodes ago, that somewhere along in your experience that the foundation, the family, as it were, was a big part of your sort of growing into this evangelical consciousness. Can Is that around this time, around college? Um, yeah, so it was just after college uh, when I, so I live in Washington, D.C. now. 
um, and I had moved out here to do a postgraduate Christian fellowship, um, like small F fellowship, <laughs> not yeah, the family, not the fellowship, um, yeah. but um, called the Falls Church Fellows Program. And during that year, I interned at a place called the Southeast White House, which is under the umbrella of the family or the capital F fellowship. Um, I didn't know coming into it uh, anything about this umbrella organization. And I only came as a part of my fellows year. Um, And, uh, but then I ended up after being there part-time during my fellows year, I ended up coming on full-time there uh, and in total was there almost a decade. Wow. Yeah. So I originally came out to D.C. to do an internship with the International Justice Mission, which you may be familiar sure. with. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're a Christian human rights organization. So when I worked, when I came out to do that internship with IJM, I was still in college, was through a college program, and um, it was tiny. There were like a dozen of us in a house in the suburbs in Virginia, like doing the whole thing. Hmm. Um, and now it's this tremendous organization, right? Um, but so that was what had initially brought me out. I got connected to this church, the Falls Church Episcopal, um, and uh, and they have this fellows year. During my time when I was here with IJM, I was at a young adult group for this church and heard some stories about mentoring that was going on in Southeast D.C., and that ended up turning into that I did my internship at the Southeast White House. Um, so then when I came on full time, I was part of a program called Friends of the Children, um, which is a youth mentoring program where we started with kids uh, in first grade and in theory committed to mentoring them through high school graduation. Wow, that's a long uh, now time. up front, I committed to five years. So the program itself committed to like mentoring them the entire time. Hmm. I, as a 22 year old, made a five year initial commitment um, to this group of girls who I then like went into a school and worked together with teachers and administrators and parents um, to kind of select this group of girls. And then that was part of a bigger group of things that were going on with after school programs and volunteer mentoring, like more like big brother, big sister that we would pair people. Um, and, but that's basically what I, what I did for 10 years. Um, and that was under the umbrella of the fellowship. My initial exposure was during that fellows year, like exposure to kind of the broader thing was attending the national prayer breakfast. And that was an, as is described in the Netflix series, it's a multi-day event. Like that Thursday morning prayer breakfast is, you know, the main golden ticket. But um, for several days, they've got different dinners, different lunches, speakers, regional things, like networking things. And so during that, um, I heard like various perspectives on faith from different um people who were doing different work all over the world and um, people who were uh, in the military or in the government in different ways. And um, so it actually was like kind of this very broadened picture of Jesus and people taking Jesus into different places or um, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but like, being very much not confined to the walls of a church, hmm. I'll say. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like Jesus out in the world in politics. Right. Right. And, um, and that was really what my fellows year was about. Um, a lot about vocational ministry and, um, maybe blurring the lines somewhat between like what we would think of as like secular and sacred, you know, like, right being more holistic. So there were actually, you know, some really positive things about that for my faith at that time. Um, I didn't 
I would, didn't have any like awareness of like nefarious <laughs> things that were going on behind the scenes or sure. like, you know, feeding into power of world leaders and stuff like that. To me, that experience was, was very positive mm. and, and being like faith, you know, whatever you're doing, you can do it for Jesus basically. Right. You don't have to be just a pastor or a Sunday school teacher or, or you know, like you could really have exactly. in- influence in the world and do serious stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think as a whole, like that, that really is how most people experience the prayer breakfast or the, uh, the touches that they have with the family. Hmm. Right. I mean, it's a very small percentage of people who are holding that power and pulling those strings Mm. in the way that you see in the film. Um, And I don't think it's misrepresented. Um, I just think that that's, you know, it's one kind of, it's where all of the power is in the fellowship. But there's just a lot of people who see it as, hey, whatever you're doing, you can do it for Jesus. And so, um, but then over like my period of time with the fellowship, um, then I would see more of how things were controlled and centralized and organized, even though they would say we're not an organization and Doug is not our leader. And, you know, we don't hold power or whatever like there was all this like you know trying to be invisible and pretending that we're not an organization when like i literally am like my paycheck comes through you (laughs) (laughs) right right yeah you are an organization um but and these these philosophies of like jesus plus nothing Mm. um and but then you're like well, <laughs> that's like a nice catchphrase, but like it's Jesus plus uh, the ideal nuclear family, you know? It's so you Jesus. heard that Jesus plus nothing teaching while you were there. For- oh, yeah. All the time. Hmm. All the time. Um, and and that idea of um, of like lifting up the name of Jesus. Right, right. And it's it, all very it, vague and essentially nebulous. Essentially having like this mystical power. Hmm. And that's the thing, like that there there was very little talk of salvation, redemption, heaven, hell, like those key evangelical ideas. Um there really was this focus on Jesus of Nazareth the gospels and that just Jesus, like it was Jesus's job to show up. And so it kind of took away responsibility for the ramifications of your actions, right? Like all I have to do is show up and say Jesus or like talk about Jesus or focus on Jesus. But then like it's up to, him to do that work. So there's this weird sort of just shirking of responsibility for your actions and freedom from what a lot of people experienced as like evangelical guilt, right? Because it's not actually my job to present the four laws to somebody or something or like get a tract or get somebody to say a certain prayer. So there it's just like very multifaceted because in this effort to just lift up Jesus and bring him to places, it also released people from a lot of what they had maybe experienced in their own like fundamental or evangelical pasts. Mm. And so, but then what that looks like for people is, is like all very, very different. So it is a very like ephemeral. Right. It feels like, 
Yeah, it feels like this idea of Jesus is this empty vessel that could be filled with whatever you want, mm-hmm. which is why it's so susceptible to abuse, right? So if you right. just come and say, well, you know, we're just going to ask Jesus what we should do in this situation, or we're going to pray right now. And then someone says, you know, the Lord laid it on my heart that we need to drill for oil in the, you know, the Arctic (laughs) Circle. And other people are like, yeah, I heard the same thing, you know, like that would be pleasing to the Lord. And well, I guess that's it then, you know, I mean, there's, because there's no way to check that, like, there's no way to verify that. It's just, and so it's this sort of slippery way to insert you know, one's own agenda without taking, like you said, not taking responsibility for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting, like with Jeff and some of the things that he's he says about kind of the legalism of things, there also actually really was a focus on on not having legalism. And mm. um, so like when he experienced with Ivanwald, Um, And just uh, to give some context, so I worked at the Southeast White House at the same time that he, quote unquote, like infiltrated Ivanwald or something. So that all happened live in real time for me, like after he left and wrote the article and we were all like, oh, my gosh, you know, what's going to happen with this article? Is it going to oh wow, like blow things up? Are we going, you know, like... And then, like, essentially nothing happened, right? <laughs> and right, then he it wrote got buried. Two books. Yeah. And, like, and again, it was like, are people going to catch on? And, I mean, now we're kind of waiting to see what the Netflix series, like, you know. Um, I mean, certainly a lot more blew up after the C Street scandals. Um, yeah, but they but shot anyway. themselves in the foot with that one. I mean, that wasn't, any, yeah. you know, they basically, it was like unforced error on, on their part. Um, but... Yeah, I think what's what's interesting, I mean, a friend of mine who uh, was uh, writing some articles about the Netflix series, who's been a religion-adjacent journalist for a long time, pointed out in an article that she, I think it hasn't published yet, that the coverage of the Netflix special was covered under, like, culture and entertainment. It wasn't covered under politics you know, so it was sort of, you know, it, it was like media outlets could talk about it without taking it seriously. Like, oh, yeah, that was a really good show. People really liked it, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. without really digging into like, wait, now, wait, what was that about? Holy crap. Mm-hmm. Like, what's going on over there? Yeah. What yeah. I think what's interesting, you know, it, that you're pointing out is that Jeff has this, you know, 30,000 foot view of the whole thing due to his research. But he came into it much the same way you did, which was through a network of people who were wanting to do good in the world and mm-hmm. and mobilizing their faith, whatever they thought that was. And, you know, everybody's mm-hmm. got a different, you know, experience of that. But whatever they, whatever they took their faith to be, they wanted to put that into action in the world in some meaningful ways. And so these young men, men ended up at Ivanwald. You ended up at Southeast White House. And, right. and it was very under the radar. Like, there wasn't... And I think the men were being groomed more, it seems like, for... This, For sure, this bigger yeah. conspiratorial type of leadership and whatever, but but at right. this, I think your testimony really shows that it it wasn't obvious on the surface and isn't even today that this is some nefarious type of uh, activity going on. Right, right, yeah. And in terms of some of those experiences that I was referencing, like for him, where he was like, "Oh, there's like you know, no drinking, no sex, no swearing." In, and that may have been the environment and how, you know, how he experienced it or how things were messaged to him. But there was also this sense of that there were no rules um, in the fellowship in that in the way of kind of not having that legalism. So like so there was a story where one of the leaders of the Southeast White House was meeting with Doug Coe and um, was saying that, that we were struggling with some things. And one of the things that he said to Doug was, you know, that the kids uh, were, were swearing a lot. And Doug Coe says, well, what's wrong with swearing? Hmm. And then the leader of the Southeast White House was like really taken aback. And it was like, well, like what, like we're, you know, <laughs> I was kind of didn't know what to do with that. Well, from my perspective and what I saw, I mean, it didn't really surprise me at all 
because in the environment that we were in, our kids had generally lacked boundaries Hmm. and we were doing a service by creating boundaries. Right. And some of that means um, in this context, like not swearing right out of respect for the people that, you know, they care where about you are, that. you're doing that kind of thing. Yeah. And like, whereas for Doug and like the Ivanwald guys who are coming a lot of those guys are coming from a really legalistic background. Hmm. And so to them being able to like drop an F bomb is actually providing them a freedom. Like that's what they needed. Right. So they needed freedom because they were coming from legalism and we were working a lot of times with youth who needed boundaries because they had none, but Doug didn't have any ability to um, see things from a different perspective honestly right (laughs) and so to him he just was like well he he was taking his ivanwald you know mentality and couldn't hear the leader of our ministry and what he was struggling with when kids were like like swearing and throwing rocks at the house you know (laughs) and so and like there were other other ways like i would see that play out like they had um the fellowship was absolutely, you could never do basically anything transactional. So like um, you could not charge for anything um, huh. or ha- like if they had, well, they do charge for the prayer breakfast. That's a, right. <laughs> that's a different thing um, where it's funny in the Netflix series, they're like, you have to be invited just like you would be invited by a friend. And I'm like, and you have to be invited and pay four hundred and fifty dollars. Right. But um, so they do charge for that. But like they're in terms of being on Capitol Hill and being kind of in this like relational ministry with with senators and those in power, there was very much this like we people are so used to trading favors um, that we want to be able to give and like ask nothing in return. Right. Mm. Um, And so on Capitol Hill, again, that was like something that was unique to be able to show up and say, hey, I don't need anything from you. I'm not even trying to convince you to vote this or that or whatever. I just want to show up and talk about Jesus, you know, in theory. Um, But then what that meant for us in Southeast D.C. running this ministry was like they wouldn't let us start a thrift shop where people paid money for things, Hmm. right? Which, so like I'm over here going to like Christian Community Development Association conferences and like learning about, you know, these things where um, how much power it can give to communities to be able to like run a community food bank or run, you know, at Christmas, have people actually buy gifts at discounted prices for their kids instead of just receiving charity right Mm -hmm. and that there can be some really good empowering things by requiring people to um to pay or give in some way right in exchange because that is when you're you know used to just being given things like it can actually be empowering to then say oh hey i earned this or i bought this for my child or i chose this right right but we weren't allowed to follow good Christian community development um, practices because we weren't allowed to charge anybody anything because that was what they did on Capitol Hill. Do you think that was intentionally like trying to keep people sort of in like patronage to them or, or just that was just what they were used to doing and that was the rule? I think, yeah, I think it was a total inability to see something from a different perspective. Wow. Um, and, and so those, I mean, we had those conflicts, you know, on an ongoing basis about like we, again, Doug wasn't the leader, but Oh, if one of our, leaders came away from a meeting with him, we would have yay or nay on something we were or were not allowed to do. Right. Right. Um, and it was like, no, they would follow whatever philosophy they had developed to minister to senators. And they really couldn't 
let us adopt that um, or adapt that in a different way, hmm. in a different context. And that's just how Doug was. Now, maybe I only knew him in his 70s and missed his glory days or whatever. Maybe he was just totally set in his ways by the time that, like, you know, he was in my world. But, like, like that scene um, when he's in Romania and he's talking to the kids mm-hmm. and they ask him, what is, what's your name? And he says, I'm just a friend from America. Right. Right. Yeah. As if he has to prove this, like, I am nothing. I'm not the important one. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, these kids are just trying to practice their English. I mean, really. Right. Yeah. They're just <laughs> being polite. Like, you're holding yourself to this principle that you have of making yourself look super humble. Right. By just saying, I'm a friend from America. They don't care. They just yeah. are asking, what is your name? Right. <laughs> because they're practicing their English, you know? Right. And right. like, and that it's like a silly scene, but like that to me was just like, so quintessential Doug that he's just like, I can't adapt to any situation or see it from a different perspective. I just have like my party line that I have developed and everything I say is a stump speech and like it did seem like party line. yeah the clips of him except for that one creepy speech where he talks a lot about hitler and mao um mm-hmm. it did seem like he was constantly repeating talking points you know like he, there was he was like a little sh- a little hollow inside you know mm-hmm. yeah at one of the prayer breakfast things i went to and there was like a student forum and he and he was there and all of the young people were like literally sitting at his feet and somebody asked him something about what, um, how Christians could do X, Y, Z. And um, as it touches on, on the film, he was really opposed to the word Christian, which he felt was totally divisive and politicized and, you have to be a you know a follower of Jesus and just talk about Jesus of Nazareth. But like whatever this student had asked, the entire like heart of his question was completely ignored. And Doug went on a 20 minute stump speech on how we shouldn't call ourselves Christians. Oh, weird. And like never answered the guy's question. And that and that was just par for the course. That was how I experienced him every time I was around him. Huh. And it does, you know, it's it, because he's so sort of blank, you know, in a lot of his interactions, it's hard mm-hmm. to tell what he really thinks. And I even asked Jeff mm-hmm. this on the, on the podcast a couple weeks ago, you know, like, does is he earnestly believing that he's just following Jesus? Or does he also know that this is just a cover for men in power? Right. <laughs> um, I think... It like borders on delusional, you know, like I think exactly. he believes it because he's built his entire world around it and he's not going to, he's not going to see it any other way. I mean, in the, in the series, I think it's Zach Womp, I think is the uh-huh. one um, gentleman who speaks throughout the series and is, is like totally a hundred percent all in fellowship, you know, yeah, where he's yeah. just like, oh, the there's sofa. nothing, you know, shady going on here. We're just, you know, just like, a bunch of men praying and sporting one another. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, and they're doing it and it's working for them. And yeah, I, I think that, I think that overall there's not, like in some ways it's true that the ones who are like, there's no conspiracy theory going on here or like, you know, right. Like we're just, um, but it's, I mean, it's kind of, it's like, um, white privilege. (laughs) It's like, you know, they don't see it and homophobia and things where you're like, well, I'm not a racist. Like, I have a black coworker I eat lunch with, you know, it's like, you're just so you can't even see it that I think that they genuinely believe that the fellowship is a force for good 
and they're following Jesus. I mean, there obviously are people who who know that they're playing a game. Um, right. But and it is super uh, cynical, like at some level, like I think knowing that you've got all these connections and that you're working the angles and all of that. Mm-hmm. But I do think you're, it, what you're saying is reminds me of Je- what Jeff said, which was that for them, it's not about what they want. It's, it's about the status quo. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like asking a, a white person to recognize their white privilege and they say something or they think something like, I'm not, you know, I don't think of myself as white. I'm just normal. Like, it's just right. sort of the normal, like, way of being to them. They don't think of it as something distinct. Uh, right. Because they're, you know, they're, as one of my students once said to me, um, you know, being white in America is like driving out of a parking lot when the spikes lay down and let you out, you know, without popping your tires. You know, mm-hmm. the, the world just kind of lays down for you and there's no resistance. And, and so, you know, as they kind of go about their work in the world, it's obvious that, hey, this is good. America is powerful. We're trying to secure American power. God loves America. God made America what it is. We're just serving Mm -hmm. all these interests. And if it means that we have to occasionally sidle up to a genocidal maniac, then, you know, whatever. From my perspective, um, I had no idea about any of that, like anti-homosexual legislation or things like that, that were, you know, that were going on with these senators who, I mean, I knew people who were supporting the Southeast White House and we got our money from, well, I should say my program in particular, the mentoring program for years got our money through congressional appropriations. So like, you know, like what it's called pork barrel spending. Yeah. <laughs> like things that are tagged onto bills. Like who knows? It could be a bill, you know, on like windmills in Kansas or something. <laughs> yeah. And then like the 297th thing is like, um, you know, $500,000 is going to this um, nonprofit in DC. Like that's how we got funded. Yeah. Um, and so, and on my end, I was like, Hey, senators that love Jesus are like tossing some money my way. You know, like I wasn't asking questions about this really. I just was like, well, this is working for me. Um, and so, I mean, you know, involvement in like anti-homosexual legislation in Romania and stuff like that. I mean, I certainly had no idea. Um, but as time went on, the misogyny of the organization became more and more apparent, like the very patriarchal, um, you know, structure of the fellowship. And, um, I mean, you'll, you notice that not, there was not a single female in the five episodes who was interviewed like from the inside, right? There right. was that one reporter. And then there was one weird clip that I honestly couldn't really place of this woman that was talking. Um, but like, gen- there are like no female voices that they, you know, put forward for this. Um, I don't know if it was a blind spot on Jeff's part not to like pursue any um female voices. I mean, he wouldn't have encountered many of them either. Right. Like in his own experience. Um, and I know that so he segregated. made a comment on Facebook about the women basically being invisible. Yeah. Um, and, but where it's most telling in the series is that when, um, when the Senator has an affair with his AIDS wife, right. Right. And so the aide's name is Doug also. There are several Dougs in it. But uh, so, and he he's telling this story. They're telling the story about the senator. The, the entire thing is about them telling the senator that he has to write a letter to the wife telling her that it's over. Right. And the man, Doug who it was his wife that cheated on him. He doesn't even not once does he talk about talking to his wife. Right. 
Ugh. He's telling via these other powerful men telling the senator that he has to break it off with the wife. And not once does he even say like that he confronted his wife or told his wife that she needed to end <laughs> it with this senator. It was like, how, what in the world? I mean, if you watch it, like rewatch it with this perspective of mm. thinking about the role of that wife. She's completely, uh, she's a non-entity. Almost nameless even. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, she doesn't even uh, exist. And, um, and so, I mean, I was in this like niche corner off, uh, you know, we were kind of like the, the stepchild, right. That, that like we got to be an occasional dog and pony show of like, Hey, look, we're doing these good works. Like, look at these guys over here. But besides that, like we weren't, uh, you know, really on the radar, like of the things right. that were happening. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but certainly over time I began to see that women acted as wives right. to powerful men and in relationships that like in friendships that I have with women who married men from the fellowship, I saw how that played out and completely patriarchal and misogynistic like yeah i think this is really valuable insight you know as we as you pointed out the, you know the, the the characters in the in the documentary series are so ma- are so predominantly male and almost exclusively male and mm-hmm. you know you're coming now with this other perspective and i think it was mentioned you know that there was an equivalent women's house right and then they have this dance or this social where the two can get together right. but it was primarily to find you know women for these men to date and eventually marry and so mm-hmm. forth they like they're going to have to meet some women eventually right so they arranged mm-hmm. these this kind of so that was a different uh house right that wasn't anything to do with what you were in. Right. So that was called Potomac Point. Right, right, right. Um, and it was just down the street from from Ivanwald. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have two friends who married men who lived at Ivanwald when Jeff was there. Oh, wow. Um, so also that idea, there definitely wasn't any sex, just like Jeff said, right? But I think he kind of said like no dating, but maybe it was it was more of like the courtship thing or something, you know, it was like no dating and somebody who hadn't grown up evangelical would say, say, Oh, there was no dating allowed, (laughs) but there was like courtship happening because I had two friends who got married. Um, and both of them like within a year, like start to finish from like meeting them to the altar, you know? Uh And, and one of those ended up, disastrous and i saw the further falling out of mm. of how the fellowship ostracizes women who don't support their men wow so i saw that over the over the course of years so i was i was fairly like disenchanted by the fellowship by the time that i left the ministry but i all i was never like a hundred percent like all in either. So mm. like a lot of people really experienced it as this is the end all be all. This is the true expression of Jesus, you know, on earth. Like this is, this is the church and acts or, you know, right. Yeah. People really like, we're like, we have arrived. Um, I, I kept a lot of it at arm's length. And to me, my focus really was on the girl's, who I was mentoring and, you know, and their families and the kids. And, um, and I kind of was like, this is something that is enabling me to do the work that I'm doing. But by the time that I left, I was quite, you know, I I was over it. I was quite disenchanted with the whole thing. So then when, when, you know, you leave after 10 years uh, involved in various elements of this, you know, obviously today you're not, a Christian or a believer anymore just mm-hmm. to kind of like bring the conversation around to full circle. Like how did you eventually sort of come to the place where not only were you not on board with the sort of what was happening with um, the fellowship, but 
also just Christianity in general? Yeah. Um, well, in terms of me leaving the ministry, the money ran out. Um, so, and I was very unceremoniously told that I, that this was my last paycheck. Oh, wow. Um, and I now know that all of that stuff was going on with C Street and, um, some of the senators who were involved in keeping our funding going were in that mess. Um, and I think that it was just, we, it, any priority list we were on, we had completely dropped off at that point. Right. You were way and, down the food chain. Um, yeah. And I was preparing to go back to nursing school. And so I just I had like seven months of unemployment. And I was like, don't tell me that y'all can't come up with like my measly little salary for seven months. Right. <laughs> Before I like go back to school. So anyways, somewhere in that mix, I went to seminary. Um, and then so I have three quarters of a master's in theological studies. And then I shifted gears and decided to go to nursing school. Um, so I was already kind of preparing my exit when, when all of that happened. Um, and then, but those, the young ladies who I started with as first graders are 22, 23 years old now. Right. I'm still they are my family. I still see them. I still live near. Um, they're pretty spread out. I live near some of them. I'm godmother to some of their kids. Like, oh, man. So to me, that I took all of the stuff that I was there for. I, I took it with me. Um, and that's still integral to my life now. Um, so I left. I went to nursing school. Um, and, and then... In nursing school, even though, like, I didn't live, like, this really sheltered life. I mean, and I studied abroad in Costa Rica and Mexico, and I did the thing in D.C. And, um, you know, and I traveled a ton, particularly with mission trips, but still, like, I was very exposed to the world. Um, but it really wasn't until nursing school that I was, like, became a cohort of people that were not focused around religion at all. Um, or I, I kind of had that when I like studied abroad, but I was choosing to like, then like go find a church in Costa Rica and like try and plug into that and whatever, you know? So when I was in nursing school, it was like, this is, I did this super intensive program. I was like, this is all that I can do. I told the church that I was involved with, like, you're probably not going to see me much for the next 18 months. And I just sort of by that circumstance, like pulled out of the church I had some other things going on in terms of like things that just weren't working for me about the church. Mm -hmm. I was in my early thirties at that point. Um, and like was not anywhere near finding love or relationship inside the church and had been totally bound by that. Mm -hmm. Um, and so just when I got into nursing school, it was just the first time that, um, that I shifted away from a life that was structured around evangelical organizations. Um, and it just kind of gave me some space. And, and then really I did kind of what you did mm -hmm. without naming it, which I'm sure you've had a lot of people say of being like, Oh, I had this like 18 months without God. Um, yeah. and, and there was some consciousness to it also of being like, Hey, I'm just like, I'm not going to go to church right now. I'm not going to be in a small group and praying. I don't pray well on my own anyways, right? Um, and so by pulling myself out of those things and then just like living life and then resurfacing after the super intensive accelerated nursing program 18 months later and being like, huh, doesn't really seem to have made a difference <laughs> that I like didn't include God in my life for 18 months. And I guess I'm good. It was, yeah. I mean, and so I just sort of, anyways, I tinkered around with, you know, trying to figure out what I was or wasn't going to do in terms of church and had some issues with the church and stuff. And then, but honestly, Ryan, it was when I heard your thing on the radio that it was, like that was it for me. Like that was a light bulb moment. It had never really occurred to me to, 
question whether or not God was there. Hmm. Like, it just was like, what role does he play? What do I have to do? You know, like this, I, I don't know. I don't really remember even like really entertaining atheism, right? You had just sort of drifted apart and God had become kind of irrelevant, but you hadn't really pressed into the question of existence per se. Right. Yeah. And so I heard your thing and I went to your blog and you, um, on your like, I think the first entry um, had posted Julia Sweeney's um, Letting Go of God. Right. Or like a clip from it. A clip from it. Um, And that was like, it was was just like a one-two punch between just like hearing (laughs) your story and listening to Julia Sweeney's. And I was like, like everything just came together like the, in this way that I was like, Oh, Hey, that's, I agree. That's an option. (laughs) I didn't even know that was out there. That's cool. Um, so yeah, so that was, um, I mean, that was four years, almost like five ish years after I had, you know, left that ministry. Right. But over that, the course of that time I I had, you know, pulled away and it was like, Oh, once I'm not, totally immersed in this evangelical world. Right. Like, you know, the, and I was like, the world is making a lot of sense the way that I'm just experiencing it now. Um, and I am fortunate in the sense of like, I mean, I grew up in LA and I moved to DC. Right. So like I, there's no shortage of connecting to people outside of the church, even though that was the only like MO I had ever used. But then once I started connecting to people in different ways, um, you know, it's it, when you are meet with somebody in D.C., they're not like, so where do you go to church? Right. You know, yeah, like, totally whereas not. we have some folks like from the Bible Belt or things like that, where it's like very, very hard. Um, so once I shifted gears, I was like, I li- it, it is I like it out here. Yeah. <laughs> I like it outside that bubble. <laughs> yeah, totally. That makes a lot of sense. And it's it's a hell of a journey, but you you managed to I think do it without you know. And again, you haven't told us all the stories, and we wouldn't have time to do that anyway. But <laughs> but it seems like fairly unscathed. If I do, I have that right, or or are you you know? It sounds like you kind of found your path, and it wasn't like su- some of these people. Some people have these super dramatic stories of leaving the leaving church and leaving religion, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, and, and the reason why like the life after God community and the everyone's agnostic community um, have been so invaluable to me is because over like just this, you know, extended period of time as things surface and you kind of find things about your psychology or your, you know, like these belief systems that you're like, oh, I'm still carrying this about myself that like, I think, um, I think I'm supposed to be nothing, <laughs> for example, right? Because yeah, yeah. it's like me, nothing, Jesus, everything, right? And so certainly like those like more subtle things over time, like I've had some space to work those out with like-minded folks. Um, but in terms of like, um, like the big blows, you know, like I didn't lose my family, um, by the time I, you know, cycled out, uh, I've just been able to have really mature, helpful conversations with my parents, um, which is wonderful. Um, and you know, I had already left and, and like started a new career. So even though I spent a decade in urban ministry, by the time I actually like got out, I, you know, had my bachelor's in nursing and was working as a nurse. So like, um, so, so definitely I've been very fortunate in those, like not finding myself in a place where like I'm alienated from my family or, um, don't have any employable skills or something like that. Um, so in that sense, yeah, it's been like, you know, pretty seamless progression. Yeah, that's good. And I mean, of course we all have our things to work out and I still have these moments kind of sneak up on me and you're like, where did that thought come from? Or where did that, anxi- mm-hmm. where did that anxiety come from? Uh, right, right. You know, and it's, it's a work of a lifetime and it's a worthy, a worthy project. 
Um, but I think that sense of being free and being sort of the way you described it, like out here, like, like it's a, a roomier place, you know? Mm-hmm. And I sense that even as a Christian and talking about evangelism, trying to invite people to become members of the kingdom of God was supposedly like we were inviting them into this more beautiful, more expansive, more sort of wonderful under, you know, mm-hmm. place that would help them understand the world more deeply. But in reality, I kind of had this intuition that it was a more constricted place, a narrower place, a place with right. less oxygen, you know, kind of like a little a little claustrophobic in there, you know. And so when you come right. out of it, there is I, – I, I resonate very deeply with your metaphor of like, I like it out here. Like out yeah. this, this kind of out here concept is like we came out from a stuffy room into a space where you could breathe, you know, and there was not right. all of this pressure to be – a certain way or say a certain thing, even if that pressure wasn't super overt and super heavy handed, there was this, for me, at least this subtle, um, you know, as a privileged person, you know, I didn't have that extreme pressure that some people have, but even I had this kind of in the back of my mind, well, I'm supposed to be a certain way and not supposed to have these thoughts. I have to suppress these things, these thoughts. And so, and certainly like what drew me into Christianity initially as a, like, as my own choice as a 14 year old was that it, it did initially make my world bigger. Right. Like I was experiencing things in Mexico and then, and like, and then I went to Egypt and I was the first person in my entire family to ever have a passport, you know? And like, it made my world bigger in that way as well as like broadening, like who I was loving and cultures and all of this. Right. And then but it hit a point where where like you're describing it the reverse was happening right i i could no longer i mean i i had restrictions on how i could love people with regards to like homosexuality or supporting right. friends who were um you know, in same gender relationships or things like that, you know? And like, it was like, instead of it making my world bigger and me loving more people, I was feeling that it was, it would have then hit the point where it was doing the opposite. It was constraining my world and it was limiting the way that I could love people. I think people do that thing where they take it seriously, right? Like, so you, you, you sort of sit, you sit under this tutelage, this sort of mentorship of the church and and they're like, okay, God, Jesus loves everybody. Like you can almost hear a Sunday school te- teacher telling that to a five-year-old. Jesus mm-hmm. loves everybody, all the little children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. And, you know, Jesus loves all the little children of the world, except the gay children. Like we don't tell them that when they're five years old. We wait until they're older um, mm-hmm. because that's about sex and we wouldn't want to talk to children about that. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. And then people take it seriously and they're like, oh, wow, they get super earnest about it. And they're like, oh my gosh, God wants, God wants us to love everyone. This is amazing. I can have this career of like helping the world. And then you realize they didn't mean for you to take it that seriously. You know, <laughs> you were, you've taken it too far now. Like you're, and, and, you know, and we used to even say from a Christian perspective, like taking the Bible at face value, even Jesus ran into that problem, right? Like even Jesus was condemned for taking the teaching of the, of the father too far, you know? Like he was loving the wrong people and inc- <laughs> including, you know, people you weren't supposed to and touching people you weren't supposed to touch. And, and, uh, so yeah, I think, you know, it's, it is a kind of like, there's like a sell by date where you, because I have the exact <laughs> same experience, you know, where Christianity was super liberating for me. I was experiencing, you know, very damaging things in my home and my home life. And, and for me, Jesus was like very literally my invisible best friend, you know, like mm-hmm. my, my invisible friend. And, and it was uh, this liberation for me, at least mentally, that someone loved me. And it was great. And I needed it at that time. And it really saved me from prop- possibly, you know, a worse experience. But then it reaches this sell-by date where you're kind of like, okay, I've done that. I've, I've outgrown it. You know, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not really for fully grown people. And mm-hmm. it's, it's unfortunate in that sense. Yeah. Well, this has been so fascinating, and uh, as a result, we've just blown through the time. Um, but I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and and tell a little bit of your story, kind of a window into um, a certain season of your life that is very much relevant to a conversation that we're having in the culture right now. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Ryan. This has been great. 
Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed Christy's story. As I mentioned at the top of the show, be sure to check out episode 81, my conversation with Jeff Charlotte, all about the family, the organization that Christy also talks about in this episode. If you want to learn more about Life After God and all the work we're doing, please visit our website at lifeaftergod.org. There you'll find links to all our social media accounts, in addition to our Patreon page, where you can support the production of this podcast and receive a few perks as well. Also, be sure to subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss a future episode. It would also be a huge help if you'd go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the show. It makes a huge difference in how many people hear about this program and tune in. Thank you for spending a portion of your day with me. Until next time, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.